This morning is our second in the series, and it's hard to make a transition from that, but uh, in our series in the questions asked and answered. And our desire in this series is to focus on what the Word of God says. And last week we looked at the entire Bible, particularly the Old Testament, and this week we're going to give an overview of the New Testament. And the next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we will begin to look at the different pieces of that New Testament so that we might get a handle on what God says to us. In fact, that's, that's kind of the, uh, the subtitle this morning, get a handle on the New Testament. And hopefully last week you got a few handles on the Old Testament. Gave you four key words that can kind of summarize that entire book. And there are 66 books within the one book, the one book. And the word Bible literally means in the Greek book, and it's the holy book. It's a set-apart book because it's the book from whom? God. And as we look about that, you can see particularly all of God's revelation in four words. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you have the story of creation. And then in chapter 3, you have the story of what happened uh, to this perfect creation. There was a fall. That's when we messed up the world through our sin. And then really from chapters 4, really through chapter uh, uh, 19 in the book of Revelation, you have the story of redemption. So you've got creation, you've got fall, you've got redemption, and then basically chapters 20 through 22, you have the story of consummation. So creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Another way to look at that, and this kind of brings in the whole main purpose of the Bible, which is to proclaim God's relational rule, his kingdom message, where he, he gathered and created a people to, to come in loving, joyful relationship with him, is that another way to look at that is God's relational uh, rule uh, revealed in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, rejected in chapter 3, um, restored or redeemed in chapters Genesis 4 through into Revelation, and then God's relational rule restored in chapters 20 through 22. So you got either way to get a handle of the entire Bible. Another way to look at that is, and we're going to see that this morning, is relates to promises. But before I do that, I thought I'd share with you not... Um, Questions given to me, though I'm going to get to that in a moment, but questions given to children. You know, we've heard sometimes children's humorous response to questions, um, or the humorous questions children ask. But this morning I want to give you a couple of responses to questions answered by children. Teacher, now Simon, tell me frankly, do you say prayers before eating? That's a great question. Response back from Simon, no sir, I don't have to. My mom's a good cook. <laughs> that, that sounds rather logical to a child. You know, you pray for it because you're not sure it's going to it, eat well. Uh, I trust God. Uh, I trust my mom to give me a great meal. Teacher, Harold, what do you call a person who keeps on talking when people are no longer interested? Harold, a teacher. <laughs> I'm so glad he didn't say a preacher. <laughs> uh, but sometimes that happens. That's, that's really why we're doing the series entitled Questions Asked and Answered, even though it's really a survey through the New Testament, because I want to make sure that you haven't stopped listening before I've stopped preaching. And if, I, if that happens, you can still just write down a question, and we'll try to respond to that in a variety of ways uh, in the days and weeks to come. Uh, part of what we'll try to do, and at least this is on the experimental stage, is that I'll begin each message with a couple questions, or at least one question that someone has asked this past week. We'll post most of the detailed answers on, on our website, but there was a couple questions asked in response to last uh, Sunday's message. And one of it was, isn't it rather circular reasoning to claim that the Bible is inspired because the Bible claims it's inspired? 
And the answer to that is yes. <laughs> but it's really only one step in the reasons why we ought to believe the Bible's inspired. That's just the first step. And it's an important step because why should we believe the Bible is inspired unless it thinks itself is inspired? And the same thing as it relates to Jesus. Uh, we believe in Jesus probably before we believe in the Bible. Uh, for most of us, if we came to know the Lord at an early age, uh, but even later on, we're just so impressed with who He is. And then later on, we have more and more progressive confidence with the Bible. Well, Jesus believed the Bible, and if Jesus believed the Bible, and I believe in Jesus, that's a pretty strong argument for me. But there are other reasons. In fact, this relates to another question that was asked this week. Since, since we believe the Bible is inspired and we don't have the original writings, or if you've ever read books about that, the original autographs, we don't have the words in Moses' handwriting or the scribe he might have used. We don't have John's scribbles on a papyrus. So if we don't have the original writings, then, then how can we put confidence in this book that's been transmitted over centuries into what we have right now? Well, there are long answers to that question, and quite frankly, I gave too long of an answer in the first service and had no time to preach my message. But I will, I will, I will give you three simple things. Basically, there are three ways to determine whether anything written in history is reliable or historical, whether it's the Bible or anything else that's written in antiquity. And it's the bibliographical test, the internal test, and the external test. The bibliographical test is simply this is if you look at something that was written, say like Plato, um, how many years do we have, this is the bibliographical test, which is basically the quality of the manuscripts, the number of manuscripts, and the reliability, or the time frame from which the the manuscript was written and the copy we have uh, of it. Well, Plato had seven copies of of his writings, and they were written, the copies of them were 1,300 years since he wrote them. And most historians feel some confidence that that's what he wrote. How do you compare that with the Bible? The Bible doesn't have seven copies. It has 14,000 copies of the New Testament. And not only that, it wasn't, the, copy, the earliest copy is not 1,300 years from what it was written. It's written within 60 years, and some say even with two or three years, if you look at the Gospel of Matthew. And so you look at the bibliographical test, the number of copies, the reliability or quality of those copies, and how close those copies were made to the original, you find the Bible almost miraculously, just from that perspective, demonstrate that it's authentic. The internal test is basically, are there contradictory statements within the text? And we talked about its uniqueness, and we talked about its, its prophecies, your predictive statements. The Bible is unique in that way in terms of its internal test. And then third, an external test would be, is there anything outside that source, whether it be the Bible or Plato or anything else, that might confirm what is in it? And the Bible has all kinds of external things, like Josephus, who wrote about this person named Jesus, who was crucified by Pilate, and uh, many people thought that he rose from the dead a third day later. And it, it, it just verifies what was written in the Bible from someone who did not write in the Bible. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, well, this morning what we want to do is we want to go from looking at the Bible in its entirety to focus a little bit more on the New Testament because that's what we're going to be looking at throughout the, the, the weeks uh, and months of 2011, Lord willing. We'll, we'll intersperse some, some topical or other book studies uh, throughout that ser- this series. But as we look at that, part of what helps us in the New Testament is what we talked about last week. Another way to kind of get a handle on the Bible is look at the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is about two-thirds of our Bible, and the New Testament is about one-third of it. 
the Old Testament can be summarized and the New Testament can be summarized with a key word, promises. Remember this from past week, those who are here? The Old Testament is promises made and the New Testament is promises kept. So if you get that, you've got at least some summary form or handle on how this book is put together. 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, 39 in the Old Testament primarily are promises made. The 27 in the New Testament are promises kept. But even with that, you're saying, well, okay, can you give me some other introductory things that will give me a good sense of where we're going with this book called the New Testament? Well, that's what we're going to try to do today is we look at promises made and then the promises kept. Well, what promise would we go back to in the Bible that would particularly speak about the most important promise? Well, if we were going to begin at the beginning, we'd begin at the book of Genesis. So get your Bibles out and turn to Genesis chapter 3. I know it's not in your outline this morning, but this is a freebie here. Okay, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 really begins with the first promise that, that gives us a clue what's happening next. Not a lot of detail, but it gives... The, the big idea here. And it comes right after we messed up the world. We had creation in chapter 1 and 2. We had the fall in chapter 3. And the consequences are also laid out in chapter 3. And if God is going to redeem or buy back, gather back a people to his name, uh, one logical question, well, how is he going to do that? You know, we messed it up. He said if we sin, we were deserving of death. Uh, he's a righteous God. He's a just God. He can't just... You know, look, look around, look away from our sin. How is he going to do this? Well, Genesis chapter 3, 14, and 15 speak about what's he going to do, a promise made. So the Lord God said to the serpent, who was Satan embodied in, a, in an animal, and God said, okay, I'm not going to let this serpent run around like he was talking to Adam and Eve. And he says, I'm, I'm going to make a symbolic judgment upon the being by which uh, Satan portrayed himself. He says, because you have done this, verse 14, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Um, Does anybody, there there actually is some people in our church, anybody here love snakes? Anybody just raise your hand. We got a a hand back there. We have some people who have snakes as as pets and, and, uh, I almost did a horrific thing uh, about a month or two ago. Uh, there was a pet snake found on our property, which we did not know it was a pet snake. And they, they called me and I said, well, you could do a couple of different... I gave them a couple of different options what they ought to do with that snake. And then afterwards, I, I told people, if I had been here, I would, have, I would have cut that snake's head off. That's what I would have done to that snake. I'm, I'm not a snake fan. And, and Jesus at least portrayed Satan and said, hey, you're going to be the... The, uh, you're going to have, you're going to be on your belly. You're going to eat dust. You're going to be more cursed than any other beast of the field. But then he goes on and speaks to Satan directly, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Okay, so there's going to be a, a battle between the evil one and the woman, and between your seed. Now he's speaking to Satan here and her seed. And you're thinking, now Satan, what kind of seed does he have here? Is he talking about his demons, the other angels that fell from, uh, from uh, rebellion against the most holy, righteous God? No, I don't think so. I think he's referring, as in John chapter 8, 44, where Jesus was speaking to some people that were rejecting him. He said, you are of your father, the, the devil. And those who live through life, basically we live either following the master or the substitute master. 
We either follow the holy one or the evil one. And so he says, I am going to put an image between those who walk with God and those who don't walk with God. But even more specifically, about not only those who walk away from God, but particularly the one who is promised from God, the seed. And then he says this, he, the one who is the seed of the the woman, shall bruise your head, give you a fatal blow, and you, the evil one, the serpent, you shall bruise his heel. And in that, we have the first beginning of the promise of God promising the promised one. What's the biggest promise in the Old Testament? Is that the Messiah is to come. The promised one is to come. The deliverer is to come. The rescuer is to come. The true Lamb of God is to come. And he said, when that Lamb of God come, Satan, you are going to be allowed to bring him suffering and pain, which we know is the cross. But he is going to give you a fatal blow. So as we think about promises made and promises kept, the promise is the promise of the deliverer, the Savior, who's going to conquer the evil one and deliver us from the evil in this world and in our lives. But I want to go to another passage. Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah. And here, and I go to this passage to to speak of our division in the Bible between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, Calling it the Old Testament and the New Testament is not necessarily an inspired label. Um, you know, they were just a collection of books that God had recorded for us to deliver His promises made and promises kept. They were written over the Old Testament was written over a period of about fourteen hundred years, from eighteen hundred BC to about four hundred BC. Malachi, the last recorded part of of uh, the Word of God, and in it, then there was four hundred silent years before the New Testament came on the scene. But as you look at that, God had his plan laid out, and it began to play out. And that's where we see all the journeys of God's people, rebellion, rebellion against God, believing God, and the promises made and broken by, by God's people. But God's promises always come true. But in Jeremiah chapter 31, we basically begin at verse 31. I know in your outline it says verse 33. This is a key passage. So if you like, have your own Bible, you like to underline passages, this is one to underline. This is a key principle, a key passage in all of the Old Testament. And this is what the prophet says to his people. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. And he's speaking about the future. He's talking about, I'm going to make you a promise now, and later on that promise is going to be kept. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, for someone to get a new covenant means they must have had a Oh, you are such a bright group. You are so good. All right. So you know, we're, we're going to be seeing him contrasting the new covenant with the old covenant. Or to put it in a word you could actually translate this, he's going to translate the New Testament with the Old Testament. And, and here is the idea here. Verse 32. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Now, I'm I'm comparing this new covenant, which I haven't explained yet, this new promise, this new testament, and I'm going to contrast it with the old one. Now, God has made, again, many promises in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, but he's speaking particularly here about the Mosaic Covenant, which is built on the the covenant of Noah and particularly the covenant to Abraham. 
He said that one was a, a covenant of law, which I put out very plainly in immense detail how you were to live and how you were to worship me and how you were to follow me. And I was very plain, particularly in the second giving of the law, and that's what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. If you obey me, you'll be blessed. And if you disobey me, you'll be cursed. He says, I'm going to make a contrast between the law that was given on tablets, an external approach to follow after me, and the new promise I'm going to give you. What's that new promise? But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord. Again, he's speaking about future. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their, what? Their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So he's speaking very powerfully here. Now, the law is not going to be an external declaration of how to know me or to live for me, but it's going to be one internally written upon the inner parts of a person. Now, the law in the Old Testament was good. Sometimes people will look at the law and they say it was evil and we shouldn't even think about it at all, whatever. It was a statement of particularly the moral law of God's holiness. That was a good presentation of the nature of God. However, the law was given as the book of Galatians tells us, as a tutor, as a teacher, to tell us very plainly that we can't measure up. That in and of ourselves, we will never be good enough to get to God. And, and of course, you know, that's, that's the response back to someone when you say, well, you, you know, what do you believe? Well, I just believe in God. Well, do, do you believe uh, in Jesus? No, I'm not really into that organized religion stuff or whatever it might be. And, and, they, and you ask them, well, are you, are you ever fearful that, you know, you're going to be, when you get to heaven, that God's going to let you in? And, and they say, well, no. I said, well, why not? Because I think I am good enough. Well, the law tells us that we're not good enough. No one is good enough. And that's why God is giving you this new covenant, this new promise of, of what he's going to do. Verse 34. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. And he's speaking about the millennial reign of Christ when he comes again. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now this is a new promise, a new covenant, a new agreement, a new testament that God made in the Old Testament and was going to fulfill in what we call the New Testament. And it was a promise given to Israel, but as we know in the Abrahamic covenant, that Israel was going to be the source of blessing, not only for the people from Abraham's loins, but from all the nations of the world. So this promise begins to explode out to anyone who responds to the testament that God is giving. Now, let me give you another backdrop. When we say covenant or testament, in reality, it's a, a legal declaration. Now, particularly in, in this service, I think I can say this um, uh, even with Kyle here, okay, is that really everyone should have a will. Everyone should have a, a trust. Everyone should have a declaration of what's going to happen when you, what? 
die. Do you prefer the state telling you what your resource, where your resources will go, or do you want to make your plans before you go ahead? And really, a covenant or a testament only comes into operation, if I were to write a will, or, and I have, and also a trust, it only goes in operation in terms of what I'll give to the Lord, and I put the, the, the church in my, my, my will and my trust. But take my kids. My kids will not get anything out of my will and testament until I what? And that's what they're praying for, that I will... No, no. It doesn't doesn't come into effect until death occurs. Now, in the Old Testament, the promises that God made them through the law and through the sacrificial system was verified when the animal's blood was spilled. Now, in the New Testament, the covenant or promise that God makes, which is to write His law on our hearts, to, as verse 34 says, to remember our sins no more, came into effect when Jesus did what? He died. So the New Testament, as we call the 27 books after the 400 silent years of the 39 books in the Old Testament, is a statement of the promise made beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and fulfilled in Jesus, and the record of that is in the New Testament. And the New Testament, as we're going to see, does two things. One, it, it declares that promise, or that covenant, or that will, or that testament, clearly, so we don't miss it, and then it explains... Now, how should you live? To live out in an honoring way. I, you know, take it this way. Whatever I leave my kids, I hope that whatever I leave them, they live well with what I leave them. They won't dishonor whatever I, I were to give to them. Isn't that true? Isn't that what you think of all the things that you might leave? That, you, that they, would, they would honor it, they would appreciate it, they would, they would live wisely. And of course, that's exactly how God does for us. He gave us a, a living trust, a living will. He, he paid for it by his blood. He gives all the riches of, of, of knowing him now and all the promises of, of inheriting everything in the future. He says, now live well. That's what the New Testament is about. Well, let's look at some passages that speak about that uh, in the New Testament. That's promise made, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And it's interesting, verses 35 through 37, you can read those afterwards. God says, look, this is an unconditional promise. If this promise doesn't come true, the sun's going to start shining. The moon's going to start uh, uh, during the day. The moon's going to start stop shining in the middle uh, in the night. All things will go uh, to, to destruction if I don't if I'm not faithful to this promise. Well, let's look at what the, how the how the New Testament uh, declares that this promise is fulfilled. Look at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. Jesus is with his disciples and he's explaining what we celebrate as a discipline in our church, once, once every Sunday, usually it's the first Sunday of the month, you can do it more than that, uh, but it, it's the Last Supper or a communion with them. And In, in verse 26 of, of, 20, of chapter 26, he says this, And they were eating, and Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, which was probably the third cup of the Passover meal, the cup of blessing, and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, the new promise, the new agreement, the new will, the new trust 
that I am promising to you, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. The Old Testament is promise made, and the New Testament is promise what? Kept. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, basically says the same thing as Paul talks about that. He said, you know, take in remembrance of Jesus, this new covenant, this new agreement, which is a relationship with him. But turn over to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews was written to uh, Hebrews, uh, Jewish people, uh, people uh, of all different, different parts, finding different places in their spiritual journeys. Some of these Jewish people were people who had come to faith in Christ, and, and we need to realize... The first church, I don't know it was the first Baptist church of Jerusalem, but the first church was all Jewish. There weren't any Gentiles there. They were all Jewish. Okay, and and then, uh, then there became some conflict between uh, the Jews and the, believing, the non-believing Jews and the believing Jews, and then there was the, the Gentiles came in, and then there was conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. But, but all throughout history, there have been uh, Jewish believers and Jewish non-believers and Jewish people who were on... On the, on the fence trying to figure out, hey, is this really true? Well, the writer of Hebrews tries to make very, very clear what God has done. That, again, God made promises in the Old Testament, promises made, and now promises have been kept. And particularly about the most important promise, which is the promise of the one who is going to be the fulfillment of all the blood sacrifices in the Old Testament. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19 and 22. Verse 19, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Just taking those words simply. He said, look, you need to understand the new covenant, the new promise, the new agreement is so much better than the old one. This is better because the old covenant, the covenant of law, could not make you perfect. And Jesus, even in the, on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, hey, God's will is for you to be perfect as your, as your Father in heaven is what? Perfect. Anybody want to live up to that standard on your own? I mean, that's what Jesus said. You are to be as perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, the law is not going to get you there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So as we look in the New Testament, again, it's all about this promise that was made and now kept, and it's so much better because it makes us perfect. And we draw near into the presence of God. It is a better hope. Verse 22, By so much more Jesus has become a surety or a guarantee of a better covenant. How can this be true? How can this be true that all those sacrifices in the Old Testament were just a shadow of what was to come? And the only way you can answer it is because of Jesus. Jesus was the Lamb of God. He was more than just some Palestinian peasant who was put on a cross like probably many Palestines, uh, Palestinians that were, that were put on, uh, on crosses. That's where they were living and they were rebelling against God. But he's saying, no, this is God in the flesh. He's the guarantee that this is more than just a death like many other deaths. Let's move on. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, now he's speaking about the old covenant, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic will agreement, then no place would have been sought for a second. Now, he's using simple logic here. 
if what you have is sufficient, then don't pursue anything else. But let me ask you, apart from Jesus, what do you have? You have your own merits to stand before a holy God. If that's good enough for you, then hey, just don't, don't worry about Jesus. Just say, God, I'm, I'm coming. Um, you're going to be glad when I get there because you're going to say, hey, you're going to make heaven a better place because you're perfect. But he goes on and he says, hey, the reason we need a second covenant because the first one is not sufficient. It was sufficient in that it did what it was supposed to do to point out our sin that we were not worthy. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming. And now he quotes from Jeremiah, which we looked at at the beginning. It says the Lord, When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And so he speaks again of that promise that was made and now promise kept that needed to come for us to fully find faith in him. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 through 17. And for this reason, he is the mediator, speaking of Jesus, in the new covenant, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. You only get someone's inheritance when that person dies. And Jesus' death gave us what he had promised in the old and now fulfilled in the new. Verse 16. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. As we think about it, some people have said this about Christianity. It's a bloody religion. Now, I don't even like to use the word religion as it relates to Christianity. It's a relationship with God. But it, it is filled with blood. And these agreements are made and verified notified by the blood of the animal in the Old Testament and the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus, in the New Testament. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, and then in verse 14. Hebrews 10. But, that all that, that, but by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. This is not a sacrifice that has to continue over and over and over again. Verse, uh, verse 14. By, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Again, remember when we read that earlier in Hebrews where he said that the first covenant, the first agreement could not perfect you? But this new covenant does perfect you. Why? Because we are being sanctified. We are being set apart. We are being made holy. In fact, interesting, theologians will put it this way. You are positionally sanctified, you are progressively sanctified, and then eventually you'll be permanently sanctified. And by that, simply say, your state of position right now before God is that you are righteous because of Jesus. Now, in the present You don't necessarily live like that all the time, so progressively you are being sanctified to look like who you really are. And then when you see Jesus face to face, then it'll be permanently done. God will be finished with you when you see him face to face. And how does that happen? Because of the new covenant, the new testament, the the will that God writes in his blood. And finally, Hebrews chapter 13. 
which again speaks of how we are to live now. Uh, Verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. So he's speaking about this covenant, this new covenant, which is an everlasting one, made you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And that statement is simply saying this, is that this new covenant is, is not something simply we look back in the past in terms of when it was established, but it's a present covenant. It's a present experience of living with God by which he changes our life day in and day out. What, what's getting a handle on the New Testament? The Old Testament is the covenant of the law, and the New Testament is the covenant of grace. Purposes for both. But this is a better covenant because it lives from within and then we live it out in a world so needy to see God. I read this uh, past week about someone who, who made it his goal to write a book. I mean, it be, needs to be an author, particularly a well-published author, people that reference a book you might read and uh, that many people would read. And and the comment back to this person, this friend of his who was talking about, I, I really want to write a book someday. He said, you know, it'd be great to write a book, but it's better to live a book. And that's God's challenge for us, is to live the book, because we are the book people are reading about the reality of God. Now, real quickly, some little-known facts about the Bible. And I, and I give these, not that these are going to be on the test. The other stuff I gave you this morning is going to be on the test later on. But th- this, is, this is all for free. And the reason I give you this is just to put it in historical light, is that... These things happen at a point in time. This is not just some mythological treatise. This happened in real history. For instance, the, uh, the New Testament was written from 45 A.D. Uh, to 95 A.D. And it was written in Koine, or what's called Common Greek. It was, it was the language of the day. So Jesus lived about the age of 33, and probably 33 A.D., and, and and then, about 15 years later, all these things began to be written down about the life of Jesus. Authors. There were nine human authors in the New Testament. Paul wrote 13 of the letters. John wrote five of the letters. Luke wrote two letters. Peter wrote two. And then Matthew, Mark, James, Jude, and the author of Hebrews wrote one. The lifetime of Christ is 4 or 5 B.C. And you say, well... You know, the B.C. and A.D., B.C. is before Christ, basically. A.D. is in the year of our Lord. It's Latin. And the reason the calendar is, is written like it is, or at least the, words, the, the timeline, is because the calendar is off a little bit. They really feel that the, the, the uh, census was written about 6 B.C. as far as them going into Bethlehem. Uh, expansion of the church uh, in Acts is from A.D. 33 to the, to the year 62. The church after Acts, which is largely the epistles, is uh, 62 to 95. Uh, and then we're the rest of the story. The order of the New Testament, basically the, the, the Old Testament is written in four parts. You have the Gospels, which is the, which is the story of Jesus. You have the history, which is the book of Acts, the, particularly the history of the church and the work of the Holy Spirit. Then you have the letters, what we call the epistles. And then you have that which is future, which is the book of Revelation. So you have Gospels, you got history, Acts, you have the letters to the churches, and then you have the future, which is the book of Revelation. Uh, just a quick comment. Are there other words to be added to the New Testament? And we're not going to look up this passage because of time. But in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the author 
of Hebrews says, you know, God has spoken to us in so many different ways throughout history, through his prophets, through, through dreams, and through uh, images, all, all kinds of ways God communicated to us. Now he has spoken to us once and for all through his son. Which gives you the indication that, that the, the revelation of God is starting to, starting to close because you've got the final revelation. Once you hear the final chapter, you might get a little bit of an epilogue, but you've got the final chapter. But then you have Revelation. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, uh, the writer of uh, Revelation, John, said, hey, don't add to these words unless you want all these plagues added to you. Now, that's a similar word found in Deuteronomy and some other places in the Old Testament. But what's unique about Revelation is there's nothing more to be said. Because once you have consummation, once you have the restoration of, of that which God had relationally demonstrated to us in his rule, there's nothing more to be said. So I'm convinced, really, there is no authoritative, inspired word from God. God directs people, leads people, but I'd have to be totally convinced that God is writing new words from him, as in, you know, what comes after the book of Revelation. What's the the final point this morning? What's the so what of the New Testament? It's the same so what of the Old Testament. If the Old Testament's promise is made and the New Testament's promise is kept, what was the promise? It was all about Jesus, wasn't it? That's really the point of the Bible. That's the message of the Bible. The promise was made about Jesus and the promise was kept about Jesus. The promise one to come. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 said this, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Why did John write it? He said very plainly, so that you might believe in Jesus. And how did he end his revelation? Because he wrote the book of Revelation with these words, Revelation chapter 22, verses 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you and be with you all. As we go through the New Testament, as we look at questions asked and answered, hopefully in the midst of all the things that we see and try to understand, and understand in terms of this is, this, is, this is the truth and this is how we are to live out the truth, that we might never get so deep or so broad in terms of just giving out information that we miss the point. It's all about Jesus. That's when you come to faith, when you understand and believe in Jesus, and that's how you live it out. Let's pray. Well, this morning, as we've gathered for worship, it should always be about Jesus. This week and next week and the week after that, it's all about Jesus. Now, there's some depth to that or some complexity to that. There's there's every part of our walk in life that speak authoritatively to how we live for Jesus. But what we never forget, it's all about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And Father, maybe there's someone here today that, that really hasn't made that step. Might they then make the most important commitment that can ever be made to admit their need and turn from that which is wrong in their life, their sin. Might they believe that Jesus fully paid the penalty for their sins and rose again. And might they commit to follow Jesus as Lord, God, and Savior. Father, help us to get out the simple, clear message of Jesus to those who need him so desperately. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
This morning as we conclude our time together,